this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Tom. Are you team, hey, chef, do the work for me, or are you team, give me a bib? Team, give me a bib, baby. You're talking to a New Englander. Give me that one and a half pound red lobster, steam that puppy, and then work it. It's one of my favorite summertime activities. I like to shuck my own oysters, but kind of like Shoda, I might not be the best at it. No, I'm paying you. You do the work. That's what the money is for. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, we're down to the final three. We're on the Oregon coast. And incidentally, yeah, Tom, come on. I'm paying for this. It's too much work. It's why I don't order crab more often, because I just am not doing manual labor at dinner. No, see, I like the beauty of it. I feel like I'm being in touch with nature a little bit more when you have the lobster on the plate and you can crack it open. The only thing I will say here, Kevin... One of my biggest pet peeves is when you get like a pasta dish and the shrimp is on there with the tail. I'm done. I hate the tail on a shrimp in an already prepared dish. I get it on a shrimp cocktail because it's used as a handle. If you're going to dip the shrimp into the sauce, I understand the purpose of the tail being on the shrimp. But if it's already in the dish, 
If it's already immersed in the risotto or the pasta, there's no purpose in having the tail in there. What do you think about that? I'm with you there. In fact, there's this great like salt and pepper shrimp at the Chinese restaurant we love most here in Los Angeles. And, you know, they like many leave the tail on. And uh, now in that case, it's fried enough that you actually can eat the shell. Yeah, but I'm always with you. Now, I think there's probably an answer for this. And I know chefs like the actual flavor you get from shell is just so lovely that maybe the case is, is that you want to leave that on as long as possible. Um, and also when it comes out, do you want to start detailing shrimp when it's, it's piping hot? So th- that could be the answer. But yeah, my thing is also like if you get pasta with clams, like I don't want to start opening clams like when I'm when I'm dealing with pasta, you know, like I'm with you. Like once once I'm in a bowl of pasta, I don't, I don't need to reach in there like that. that, that that's a little much like, the, you know, but uh, yeah, that was, though, uh, a lot of crap in this episode, uh, a lot of clams. Uh, we are down to three, Shota, Gabe, and Dawn. We sort of handicapped it last week. I think it is a toss-up. And they start at five in the morning because that is low tide, and that is when you have to go put those crazy little galoshes on or whatever they are. And I, I just never clammed and oystered in my life. Like, I have to admit, this is totally new territory for me. And you're going out and you're, you know, you're looking at you're you're looking at gaper clams, you're looking at butter clams, both native to the Oregon coast. Oregon coast just produces some great freaking seafood, by the way. So there they are at the crack of dawn. Those crazy little boots and their shovels. You know, I kind of feel bad for Brooke. I feel like she's been thrown the short end of the stick all season here. She has to do the 5 a.m. in the rain, go out and clamming. And and like a couple episodes ago, she she didn't have some of the ingredients on a plate. And then there was the French in the dark preparing the dish. Oh, that's right. She she was enlisted for a quick fire. Now she's doing manual labor. Yeah, like, come on. Like, poor Brooke this season. I know. Everybody else gets to, like, put on a flower dress and just show up for dinner. And she's got to do all this work. But she seemed very knowledgeable of the task. So it seemed like she actually might have volunteered to be the 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 clamor out there to go out at the crack of dawn, no pun intended dawn out there at the crack of dawn going out and doing some clamming. I'm a bit, I love fishing. I like shrimping. So like when I go out uh, to, to Oak Island where my family goes every summer, I'll get the casting net and I'll go get my shrimp instead of buying the shrimp at the store for the bait. I'll go out into this marshy area with a casting net Allison's learned how to do it. It's fun to catch your own bait. So you catch the minnows, you catch the shrimp. Let me understand something. Not only are you going to go drift around with a stick in the water for hours, you actually are going to do the stick in the water so you can get the thing to put the thing on the bottom of the stick on the water? Yeah, so you go to like a creek, right? You go to a creek oh, and Lord. sometimes you get crabs too. You you take a casting net and it's got all these weights around this uh this circular net and then you toss it into the water and you reel it in and you get like little minnows, maybe some shrimp popping around and you put them in a bucket. Then you take the bubbler machine and you and you put it in the bucket so that the shrimp stay alive and then you take it into the car, you take the car to the pier and then you get a six pack of beer and you sit at the pier and you and you put the the shrimp on the line on the hook and then you toss the uh you, you cast out the the fishing pole and it goes into the water and then you sit there for a long time hoping to catch food um for for a meal later that day sometimes it doesn't happen so that's my that's my introduction into clamming i've never done clamming i got to tell you something tom 
But I'd imagine given the fact that I like to go shrimping and minnowing and casting nets and all this stuff, I feel like I'd really dig it. Jews ain't doing that thing and gays certainly ain't doing that thing. And I ain't doing that thing. I like it. It's. I mean, do you like hiking and camping out? Yes, I like hiking. No, I do camp. Okay. A little bit. Well, I camp if like someone carries the stuff and sets it up and everything. I glamp. Uh, that's not camping. You glamp. I'm not hauling anything on my back for the rest of my life. I'm done with that. Wait, no, you you go to Mongolia and you're living by yourself. In and there's s- a Jeep and there's a four by four. No, I enjoy the solitude of that. I understand the sort of, I, there, there's a certain peace and tranquility that comes with that activity you just described for some reason. I mean, personally, I go and get a table for two overlooking the water and they're other <laughs> and they bring me the food and that's it. I mean, I don't hunt either. So you're like, you know what, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the quick fire. I'm going to sleep in this morning. I would. I mean, there's no, honestly, and they're throwing $10,000 down on the, thing. I mean, I'm up early and that's the one thing I could be, a, I could see myself doing the clam oyster thing. Right. I could see myself yeah, you're digging around for half an hour. And get to, that I could see myself doing. In the cold rain, though? Not in the cold rain. I mean, that is the problem with the Oregon coast. It is so frequently kind of chilly and dreary. Um, and you're in that poncho. It seemed awful weather. Can't, couldn't they postpone it, it a day? Couldn't they post? Maybe maybe it's not even worth postponing because the next day is probably going to be the same forecast. But it looked miserably cold and wet and dreary out there. No, it was funny. I lived in Seattle um, for about eight months uh, when I was 20. and. It was. The, I got there on Memorial Day, and it was just gorgeous. For it was gorgeous for three months. Every single day, it was seventy-eight degrees and sunny, and the light light out until nine p.m. And then I remember there was this week in early October, and I'm walking and getting my coffee, and this like mist is hitting me at twenty-five miles per hour. The sky is so low, I, I feel like I could touch it, and, and it was just like. Welcome to Seattle. And for the next seven weeks, it was like that 24 hours a day. And it was just this moment it turned from this Pacific Northwest summer paradise to just the eighth circle of hell. And that's what this looked like. I kind of feel like Dawn might be the favorite in terms of powering through the elements. I feel like an Olympian, who cares? Like pain and weather conditions. I'm good. I'm feeling like Gabe being the Texan that he is, being in cold weather, rainy. I don't I don't think he's probably been exposed to these sort of elements. Shoda. He very cleverly said to Gabe, you know, you dig and I'll just like reach down and get them, which I thought, <laughs> which is kind of my position on this. <laughs> I would be the digger and you would just be the collector. Yeah, that's me. I'll, I'll collect. Shota actually goes clamming, so he feels like he has an advantage in this one. There's some gaper clams, which have to be, Kevin, the ugliest thing I have ever seen. They look like an organ in your body. Yeah, and it just it, it doesn't look appetizing at all. So I wouldn't know the first thing how to clean that or to butcher it. Like I don't I'm like Don. I'm like I'm, 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 I don't know what you I'm doing. Butcher with a clam? Thing. What do you do to a clam? <laughs> As if there isn't enough here. Shucking oysters and getting those clams open with that little knife that I almost kill myself on when I've done it a few times. You got a little, you kind of shimmy it, and I got scars. In the crevice. I got scars. Yeah, yeah, man, it's just like it, it's it's not fun. But you're right. Shota Japanese cooking frequently has clams. Um, you see them like a really deep, like rich miso soup. And yeah, I, I had Shota is the favorite on this one. You know, Dawn says she obviously works with crustaceans a lot because she is a Houston-based chef, but there's not a lot of clams in 
I mean, there's some oysters in the Gulf. They're mostly in the Alabama area. But um, but she said, you know, she was pretty much a novice to the, the clam business. I didn't see exactly how Shota cut himself, whether it was a knife or whether it was opening up the clams. Did you see? I had the same question, which is, you know, obviously the, the shells can be have, you know, these kind of sharp points and the edge can be very sharp. Um, but was it a was it a utensil that he that got him or was it the actual the actual clam? I have no idea. And they didn't really play it up much. I mean, that, that, looked, that was bloody. And usually, you know, if it bleeds, it leads on Top Chef, but they didn't do that. Yeah, he, he did the little one-handed cooking there at the end where he didn't have his left hand and he was still manning the, the stove. Um, and he produces sake yuzu butter clams with um, with an onion. And it didn't look like a finished dish. I almost felt like he might have missed something or didn't it didn't get everything that he wanted onto the plate. Don does the, the clam bisque with apple and Gabe hits us with the sopa de mariscos with the gaper clams. In the elements, when it's raining outside, it looked miserable. I thought these were pretty three pretty good quick fire dishes, considering the circumstances. Yeah, I figured Dawn might have a problem just because a bisque tends to underemphasize in some other, in, except in some rare cases, the the, the protein. Whereas you know, Gabe's um, sopa kind of really highlighted it, and you know, it didn't look like they were sort of chunky. It's like you know, you know, there's something more disappointing with a chowder than you really don't actually get any clams. It's like it's a lot of potato and filler, and oh yeah, there's a small clam, but um, unfortunately, Dawn's looked a little bit like it was in that ilk. And then Shota, I, I love butter yuzu sake soy. Like it's just, it is such a beautiful combination because it is truly like, you know, the richness and the citrusy and sort of the, you have this like nice sharp Umami kind of sharpness too, eggs yeah. of the sake and, and soy has salt and it's just such a great combo. And, and Shota loves him some pickled onion, doesn't he? He is Mr. Pickled Onion. You know, that duck dish he did at the beginning of the season, that was sort of the beautiful little accompaniment. And by the way, you know, who's been pickling some onions and shallots over in his house? I have, Tom. Yeah. I have found that this is one of my favorite Shota contributions of the season is I have found it such a lovely little just punctuation mark on any dish. Uh, so I have now have this mason jar in the fridge where I kind of keep, you know, some some rings of onions and shallots and just kind of um, if I do them too long, I lose like that nice red on the uh, on the onion, which is the only problem. But uh, yeah, I'm all about the uh, pickled onion. So thank you, Shota, for introducing me to this little thing that I put on all my dishes. Uh, enough of the Shota love, Kevin. I get it. You got him on the number one pick and you traded down, traded up to get him. Like, I get it, Kevin. Okay, enough. Maybe I'm a little bitter here. But how about those umbrellas? You like those umbrellas on the, the little clear umbrellas that they all had at the outside of the quick fire? Did you notice that? No, I didn't notice that. They all were like outside and they had to do the the whole like quick fire judges table and they're all just, you know, just hanging out with, with these umbrellas. And I, I, I'm trying to think of um, – you know, how many umbrellas did they have on set? And did they go for like different style umbrellas? These were like clear umbrellas. So I guess you could see everything in, in the background. So not the best. That was my other experience of living in Seattle. Like once it got to be rainy and even visiting Portland is I'm always amazed at how the residents act like it's not raining. Like, I mean, they don't speed up their walk in the parking lot. Like they don't like it's just kind of part. They are truly fish in water. And that was always weird to me. Like, because even in the southeast, you know, you, I mean, you live there, you get these like, violent thunderstorms and hey, it's raining. Right. And even though it rains a lot in the southeast uh, in, in terms of, of just inches in the Pacific Northwest, they act like it is not raining. Like, they, like they, you're not all standing around outside in a line in the rain. 
And it, it's just it's something else that kind of amused me and, and I, I just never got, which is they just act like it's not raining. Brooke, again, has to stand out there in the in the rain with an umbrella. And it just seems like, man, poor, poor Brooke, poor Brooke Williamson. All right, Brooke, out of these three dishes, which one made us happy as a clam? <laughs> There was one person who showcased cookery of the clam a little bit better than the others, and that person is Gabe. Yeah. Finally! Congratulations! Only took 13 weeks. <laughs> I finally won a quick fire challenge, allowing me to leave on a high note and a lot of momentum going into these final challenges. Gabe finally gets. The quick fire off the schneid. He is someone who uh, it was looking like a Brian Voltaggio to get his first quick fire here. Big, 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 big contribution for Team Habers or more on that later. And then here we go. Elimination challenge, Kevin. Nina Compton, one of my favorite people in the Top Chef universe. And also Kwame showing up. James Beard theme. I got a little of the history on James Beard. I didn't really know a lot of that. So I kind of, I appreciated the little history lesson on James Beard. The West is kind of really interesting for that. I mean, we also got Alice Waters and um, I, I don't think people realize like how influential Chez Panisse has been because, you know, it was California cooking and, and typically, I, I mean, I think to a great extent, kind of restauranting was always an East Coast thing. Like, you know, there was always a big thing in, in Los Angeles for years that, like, we weren't included in the, as a Michelin city. Um, San Francisco a bit more because it's kind of an older city. But, you know, she opens in Berkeley this, like, incredible restaurant in this arts and crafts style house. And it just kind of essentially and they're not they're not wrong like she i don't say created farm to table people have obviously been eating farm to table for for centuries but it really kind of in terms of elevated farm to table cooking it was it's ground zero like so many of these places we go to now right or like if you ever been to a restaurant in a cute little house you know that wasn't something that people did right they didn't have like a really nice um you know premium restaurant in something that looks like you know, someone's house. And and so the, the coziness of California cuisine, I mean, she's basically like a, a huge forerunner. It was really cool to see her because I, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong and a listener can correct me. I, I don't feel like we've kind of done a lot of Alice Waters, although she might've been on an earlier season, but my memory escapes me. Yeah. Tom brings her on, on the, on the zoom um, to basically give a little pep talk, a little pep talk to the crew. I was expecting some sort of twist like they were. When Tom shows up in the kitchen, you're always like, oh, here comes a Tom curveball, right? Right. Um, and there wasn't really that at all. It was just, here's here's Alice Waters, my, my pal. Um, and she just gives the tip of like, hey, you really need to have the crab flavor come, come through, the Dungeness crab. They're going to do a cold dish. They have two hours to prepare the cold dish. And then an hour on top of that to prepare the hot dish, which – as an elimination challenge goes, I like to see the the two different strategies here. You're preparing two different dishes. And Kevin, they go out on the boats and it's pouring rain again. You know how rainy it was is when the lenses are just fogged up. The lenses on the cameras are fogged up and it's essentially just a, an absolute downpour. It doesn't seem like all that fun. I'd imagine you're probably getting a little sick because they were up early and they're probably, you know, I don't know. It didn't seem like this was a very enjoyable experience. They got a lot of laughs out of falling out of the boat with uh, Gregory Gordet. 
I've never really fished or crabbed for Dungeness Crab, but it did feel like we were watching Deadliest Catch Top Chef style with, with Gregory and Gabe in the boat. And then you had Dawn and Shoda in a boat. Um, they go out and they get these Dungeness Crabs and pulling them in. I felt like, Kevin, were you, were you Gregory there where like a, a little crab gets you on the finger and you just, ah! Like, get over me! I have a reasonably high pain tolerance, but I remember like there was this great little shtick, a little bit by George Carlin about crabs. Something else that doesn't look like food, lobsters and crabs. I mean, anything coming at me, walking sideways with big pinchers, somehow doesn't make me hungry. In fact, my instinct is step on that fuck! Look at the big bug! Step on the big bug! Before he gets to the children. They look like they mean business. They're kind of creepy. And again, while I like crab meat, it's just not anything. Again, Tom, I mean, we're back to the beginning of the show. Like, I, I don't need any marine experiences. Like, I just <laughs> don't. I don't. I don't even like cruises. You're stuck on a boat. Now, I will say we had a really cool experience in Iceland up near the Arctic Circle. Like, like at dusk, which is 10.30 p.m., we went on like a dolphin watch, and that was cool. That I enjoyed. But, nah, man, I don't, I don't need to be – I don't need to be connected with no marine life. You know, I don't want to be any sharks. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want to be in a cage with a shark. Like, I don't want any of that. Like the, my feeling is, is we get 30% of the earth. They get 70%. That's an away game. I'm on ground. This is what I want. Now I like being near the beach. I love being on the beach. I'm a beach bum. Give me a hammock and a beach and a book. I am very happy, but like that. And I like to paddleboard on a lake. But I am not marine life is just not for me. But if I hand you a fishing rod, you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm not. I'm not in into this. Yeah, I, I mean, if you hand me a fishing rod, I'm making firewood. Except I, you know, I, I'm that's that's what's happening. <laughs> well, I have it in my notes. Crab hunting looks cool as hell. I could deal without the the weather. And I, I think someone at some point said it's so beautiful out here. And I'm like, I can't see shit. Like it's just it's just it's fog and it's rain it's monsooning it, it it might be beautiful but I'm not getting any of that um from the from this pouring rain episode um so so they get to eat the dish and they're kind of doing that uh you know they they do the little sappy like reflection on the seas and Gregory's how you doing oh I'm doing all right I'm feeling a little stressed I'm feeling exhausted but now's the time to push forward Kevin it's the finale go bigger go home. I, uh, we, we always get these little pep talks at the end. Do you think those are effective, Kevin, is when the, the uh, top chef alumni comes in and just like gives them the, 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 the old sage advice? Do you think that helps or do you think that just ramps up the anxiety level? No, I mean, first of all, as a viewer, we love seeing the Top Chef alums because – and again, that, this is what the show's done so well is sort of create this 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 family and this diaspora. It, it, it's really cool. Um, no, only because I think already – I mean, and it's to the show's credit. When you get down to the final three, you already kind of feel the stress. Like, you know, you, you, you worry for them, right? Because there is no – because, I mean, let's put it this way. The, the first half of a season is if you don't screw up, you're going to be okay. Like I, I, if you're a confident chef and you got nine contestants, you pretty much know you're not going home unless you completely screw the pooch. You're just not. And I think already I don't need any additional heightened stress because um, because, again, I mean, you look around and it's, you know, can I outcook Dawn and Gabe or can I outcook Dawn and Shota? I mean, that's like 
that's intimidating enough. Like, and, and the show already sets us up for high stakes. So I, I don't necessarily need a time. But I also know when you only have three contestants, you know, you got to fill 47 minutes. And, and you know, it, it's funny. I've noticed that in our prep, we always have a little less to talk about later in the season, even as the stakes get higher, we have less to talk about, right? So we end up talking about crabs and, and <laughs> my aversion to marine life. life or whatever it is. <laughs> All right, Kevin. So they have one hot dish, sorry, a, a cold dish with two hours of prep time and then a hot dish right out of the gate. Here's the prompt. Dungeness crab, cold dish, hot dish. Who are you picking here as the favorite going into this? I kind of feel like with the sauce profile that we have for Gabe and he's coming off a quick fire, I thought he was going to come in here and do a really good job. But Shoda comes in and says, I'm going to do sushi. And I can't remember the last time we saw sushi on Top Chef. I'm wondering how, you, how you're handicapping going into this challenge when it's Dungeness Crab, one hot dish, one cold dish. How you felt about that? Crab is something that gets handled delicately. Um, it's very easy to lose the crabness. It speaks really highly of Dawn and Gabe, who, who who tend to be bolder in their flavors. That they were, you know, they cook delicious dishes. But I, I thought this was one sort of made for Shota. There's going to be a dashi, right? Like, what better to work with than crab for that? They're going to be more subtle hints. Like, if you think like like ginger, yuzu, which is a citrus, which works beautifully with crustaceans. So I always I, I felt like this was Shota's to lose just in terms of the nature of Japanese cooking and his particular technical skill set. Yeah. So that, that was just my sense going in. But, but Kevin, this was a trio of forgetfulness or at least a trio of missing ingredients. I was shocked when we were going into the preview for this episode, there was kind of like, oh, the missing tortilla. Maybe this is, this is obviously going to be great Gabe, but maybe it's Dawn because she always misses things. Hey, listener, it's your favorite Butcher Turn podcast producer, Mays, here to talk to you about Butcher Box. A not-so-wise man once said, it's not that hard, just chop, chop. Who knew that he was talking about pork chops from Butcher Box? It's not that hard. It's easy to get high-quality meat and seafood you can trust, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You get exactly what you need, premium ingredients for your meals to feed your family. I know how it is. You go to the grocery store. You're stressed. You got a lot of food to get, and then you got to wait in line at the butcher counter. Maybe your butcher is a tall man with an attitude. I don't know. I've never experienced that, but maybe it happened to you. That's why I love ButcherBox. You've always got meat in the freezer or in the fridge. You're ready to cook at any time, and you're not going to find such high quality at such low prices anywhere else. So sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S, and use code dings at checkout to enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus $20 off. Again, that is butcherbox.com slash dings, and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S. Chop, chop. Hello, listener. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that we at Cinephobe love our pets. Zach and Boogie are inseparable. I've got two cats and a dog. And Amin is giving his best ass on performance to convince dog owners that he loves their pet. Hey, Noodle. Hey, boy. How you doing? And Noodle's just like, ah, whatever. <laughs> 
which is why today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of your family, and you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On this challenge, Kevin, all three chef testants either had a missing component because they forgot it or couldn't get to it, or in the case of um, Shoda... He removed one of the components altogether, which is always a debate on Top Chef, whether you plate, put it on the plate and just live with the results or you just take it off even though you're promising something and not delivering. This is one of the biggest debates on Top Chef is whether Shoda, when he's preparing his sushi. Shoda, what did you prepare for us? I prepared a uh, crab nigiri with the yuji kosho aioli. The crab itself is flavored with a little bit of ginger flavored vinegar. So it says two ways. Yeah, it was two ways, but the ume rice wasn't coming out exactly the way I wanted, so I didn't want to put anything that I wasn't comfortable putting on the plate. So it's only one way? It's only one way. Okay. What did you think about that drama, that development with Shoda? You know, it's a debate, but quite interestingly, generally the chef facing the question just goes ahead and puts it on the plate. Like you don't see a lot of chefs on the show say, you know, my umi rice had a little too much vinegar. It's not exactly where I want it to be. I'm not going to serve it. Because typically I think the fear is if they're missing components on the plate, they really dock you. But if I put it on the plate and just because I'm not entirely cool with it, Maybe I can slip it past the show, you know, the judges. Maybe four out of five of them get a decent plate and yeah, this is overcooked. So, I mean, that's the thing is I agree. It is a debate and it probably should be a hardier debate. But more times than not, people don't opt for what Sosha did, uh, Shoda did, which is basically to say, like, hey, I know I said on the menu two ways. I'm going one way. The ume vinegar is too sharp in my rice for that other piece. It's not going to be what I want. And I mean, it, it does suggest a certain perfectionism. Yeah, it does. And I think it, it worked out for him because I think that the chefs at the judges table appreciated that he had that kind of foresight to say, like, I'm not going to give you bad food. I'd rather give you one delicious bite or s- sushi and come up short on the promise rather than giving you something knowing that 
it doesn't taste good. So I think they appreciated that. In in other circumstances, if I think if they were perfect, Gabe and Don, I'm wondering if that's a fatal mistake is only giving one of the sushi pieces on that plate. But it turns out it wasn't a fatal flaw for Shota. Let's go through the cold because I just thought it was a really interesting contrast in, in who these chefs are. Also, I want to, a word about Naomi Pomeroy, who was one of the guests uh, at the judge's uh, table. Uh, she had a wonderful restaurant that I believe closed during the pandemic called Beast, which you talk about sort of, hey, let's do a cozy restaurant um, and do kind of a tasting menu, and it's it's really elevated. It's actually it was quite pricey. That was only my one of my only criticisms of Beast. I had a great meal there during one of my Portland trips. Um, just lovely, and she's just she's just a wonderful chef in in Portland. I think she has something new coming uh, once we get all past all this. But it was really good to see Naomi Pomeroy. One of the I was hoping you know we'd, we'd see her as one of the one of the uh, rather one of the Portland chefs around the table. So that was very cool. Um, Tom, three cold dishes. We've talked about Shota sushi one way, uh, which was sushi two ways. And he just, again, this is just Shota at his finest, right? A piece of Dungeness crab. He roasts the shell to get more flavor. A yuzu aioli, a little thing of ginger vinegar. Honestly, Tom, I mean, that that's, that's what I want to eat for my last meal. <laughs> it sounded so good. It looked so good. Um, they loved it. I think uh, it was a Dale who just said, I wanted more. Um, that's always tough, Kevin, when you're at a, 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 a Japanese sushi table and they just give you one bite and you're just like, can I have just 12 of those things? But haven't you done that before? <laughs> like have a golden eye snapper uh, with this lovely vinegary thing on the little, I think it might've even been ume. Um, and I just asked for like, an, let's bring four of those. <laughs> like a really good piece of nigiri is is man there there's nothing better in the world um now gabe goes with a crab and lobster mushroom which was first of all just a really cute concept the idea that like lobster mushroom with crab crab and lobster mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. uh he braises it in a crab stock that he makes and again this is where sort of the these, all three of these chefs are just so good technically. Does an avocado yogurt as a nod to Sarah. Well, he does not a nod to Sarah, but it's kind of an unintentional nod to Sarah. Get a little yogurt in the in the, in the final three. Uh, and then those aromatic oils that I never know how to make, but I'm dying to learn how to make because that that like translucent green on the plate. Like I think it's like a basil oil or something. And uh, boy, that looked good, man. That looked like a good. Also, I, I, both of us just love mushrooms and, and lobster mushrooms. First of all, they're so freaky looking. I mean, they literally look like lobsters and it's just a perfect earthiness to go with the brininess. Like, like all three of these dishes look great, but Gabe's really was uh, just look like a winner as well. I'm here in, in Louisville, Kentucky right now. I'm trying to go to Edward Lee's restaurant, uh, 610 Magnolia. If I can get a babysitter, maybe we can sneak out for the night. He says the comment that he wants to just take Gabe home with him because he loves this, could not love this dish more. He said, I love Gabe. I want to take him home with me. I really like watching Ed Lee this season. I feel like his commentary has been really delightful, really sharp. I really like to hear him dissect a dish. He loved Gabe's dish. I could not love this dish anymore. It was delicate and balanced. I love Gabe. 
I love him. I want to take him home. <laughs> I would imagine, though, that transporting a chef against his will across state lines is an interst- like an interstate crime. I think it is. I think it is. That would be a little weird if he did take him. And that's a long way to go from Kentucky. I mean, it's, it's, that's not a short travel. Hey, maybe that's an Oregon trail. You know, they go along the Oregon Trail. The reverse and, Oregon Trail. And back is Gabe tied up for Chef Edward Lee. So, yeah, we go with Gabe's soup. Then you got Don coming in with this cold crab salad with a cashew-like little sauce with pickled mushrooms. Kevin, they seem to love this dish again. But I I thought uh, <laughs> I thought Nina came out like a little harsh here where she just said Don has a very bad habit with whimsical garnishes that don't add anything to the dish and then Tom just says yep you know if she just did the cashew with the crab it would have been a great dish but the garnishes didn't do anything for them I thought man I thought it was part of the presentation I felt like if you're just doing crab with the the cashew sauce or the cashew puree it's not a very appealing to look at. And I know that's not the show is to have great presentation, but I think that's functional what she was doing there with the garnishes. Pickling sort of been one of the kind of culinary movements of the last few years and in present company included. I'm I'm really getting into it as sort of an accompaniment, but it's not a neutral thing, right? Like, Like pickled mushrooms, pickled persimmons, pickled radish, like these aren't neutral bites. Like it is by definition very vinegary and and while it's a lovely additive to some dishes, it might be a distraction to others. And I, that was sort of my interpretation of what they were saying. You know, you want the richness. Yeah, you feel like you need to balance it. But the problem with balancing richness is if you balance it too much, you kind of lose the richness. And so now you just have this kind of creamy texture without the sort of accompanying – that accompanying richness. And and uh, so I, I kind of got it. it. It's the old take one thing off before you leave the house. And and she doesn't always take one thing off. Frankly, the, the one thing I would object to is does she have that habit? I don't recall sort of a whimsical distraction in any other. That was the confusion for me is not that I disagreed with them necessarily. And again, I'm not tasting it, but that I just I don't recall her doing it that much. Maybe that's just an editing thing is that they they didn't they didn't push that throughout the season. Maybe they maybe she was doing that. But Nina's only been around for a few weeks. So um I don't know, but a strong critique there from Nina and coming out of this one, here's how I scored it. I don't know if you did the scoring, but maybe maybe you can review your your notes here. I had Don winning this one, Gabe coming in second, and Shota because he only gave one piece of sushi. I docked him points. Kwame didn't think that was acceptable. Um, and I, I'm sitting here being like, maybe Shota, do I put him above Gabe here? But given their risk reviews... I have Don Gabe Shoda here. That's strange because I had Don last for the sole reason that, yes, Gabe got dinged because his was technically not cold. Shoda got dinged because he didn't come through with the second piece. But Don was the only of the three chefs that got any critique on the actual dish that was served, irrespective of what the parameters of the challenge were. So I actually felt like Gabe kind of won this one, that the, that the you know, of, of the three sins, right? This was not exactly cold. Uh, you had so many distracting garnishes, eh, and where's the second piece that that the distracting garnishes, like the, the one that actually affected... In other words, if you were coming in, in the, with a veil of ignorance, uh, 
and didn't know the parameters, like Dawn's had the one defect in terms of just culinary composition, right? True, true. So that was sort of my – I kind of had Gabe winning it for having the least uh, – for his transgression being sort of the least severe. That was my take. But but I think what we're saying here is it's very close. Super close. I think Richard Blaze said that the, the cashew crab was inspiring to him. Um, and I kind of just felt like she had – I mean, it's it's super close, super close, and so coming coming out of that, I kept I was scoring it like this was a finale because I think these chefs are just so neck and neck, like like whatever is going to send them home at the time. I'm thinking it's going to be just the slightest of errors. So going into the hot one after this, it's it might as well just be a, a tie of, of those three. But going into the hot dish, they have one hour to go. Um, Shoda does the the braised daikon with the crab dashi or broth, and then Gabe with the crab fat tortillas, with the sun chokes, and Dom with the dungeness crab boil uh, with parsimons and soy and all of these great flavors. Another time where it's just like these chefs are so good, Kevin. These look so so good, all of them. The hot competition was so interesting, and again, what I loved about it, it was each a real expression of who they were like like everyone worked to their strengths there you know how sometimes when we get down to the end and you know and, and there are kind of two schools of thought you know there's the kevin gillespie like hey i'm gonna do something i might not have <laughs> do like what's the point of being here if you're not gonna stretch your right? and and then there's the other school which i don't think is a crutch at all which is i'm here for a reason like work my strengths like i'm Giannis Antetokounmpo. i'm not gonna shoot a three-pointer like i'm gonna go into the paint and, and attack. Except Giannis does shoot a lot of three pointers, man. Well, I'm saying <laughs> he is clearly in the Kevin Gillespie school of yes. basketball. That's my point. So, so each of these chefs chose the latter, right? Which is I'm Shota. I'm going to use like like what's so brilliant about Shota's dish, which was a braised purple daikon and crab stock. This little crab salad on top, tossed in a uh, like a soy sherry vinaigrette, a little bit of persimmons. Is daikon is such a lovely canvas. Right. I mean, th- th- because it's subtle, because, you know, radishes, yeah, they're, you know, I mean, there's a reason sometimes we're kind of because like, they don't really do anything, but they do do something, which is they provide this canvas for something else in this particular dish in terms of highlighting the crab. You know, I loved what um, Melissa said uh, because and, and you can tell she's sort of tipping her hand a little bit about her style, of cooking, which is like he doesn't use butter. He doesn't use chilies. And, and it wasn't, a, I don't think, a dig at anybody who does. Um, there's so many different ways to excite diners, but it is just such a testament to you just kind of just go with the ingredient. Like you're going to have enough confidence that you're not going to use butter. You're not going to use chilies. You're not going to have the bold flavor. You're going to have the delicate, subtle flavor. And, you know, whether you're whether you're reading an author, whether you're looking at a painter, like any art form, subtlety and nuance is, is a real skill. Not everybody can do that just as not everybody can be bold. But I, I just love, as they call it, they, I think they've used the word restraint, Tom. To describe his cooking. Yes, he won because of his restraint. Right, like 10 times this season. And I just think that's really cool. I, I And also what I love, it just kind of captures also the diversity of cooking. And I don't mean demographic or, or culinary diversity in terms of region, but actually like, hey, there's so many different ways to approach a plate of food. I found that Shoda, what he presented, like you said, was a very Shoda dish. And it's amazing how he can bring so much power to his dishes, the flavor, without having that kind of 
buttery richness or anything like that. He's not throwing in that the spice in there. And it just seems like he's just he knows who he is. And he's really good at preparing a beautiful, like aesthetically pleasing dish that just pow punches these these judges in the face with the flavor and the dynamic um, profiles within his dishes without having like all of the, you know how you need the fat, you need the spice, you need the ass. Like he's not hitting every single one of those and yet they love it. Everything he puts out, it might not be hitting all five of those textures or, or, or flavors, and yet he is just nailing it. So, um, yeah, they said, you know, he he had the most restraint, which is something that I think can be a negative sometimes. Is that you didn't go, you didn't push forward to do something surprising or exciting. But in his case, almost the editing and the fact that he focuses on a couple elements and just wows you with them, uh, they love that. Um, and so then Gabe with the crab fat tortillas, um, the linen mishap, I don't know whether that was the fatal flaw for him. They didn't really spend too much time saying, <gasps> can't believe you didn't get everyone a tortilla here. Can you just help me here? Crabs have fat? How does that work? That was my question. And I'm dying to know the answer to this question. I mean, look, every protein has some fat, right? And I just don't know how you extract the fat. Right. Like (laughs) you render a duck, right? It's very clear the fat gets it. You know, when you when you're putting a a steak and if you're if you're pan searing a steak, you see the fat. Chicken obviously, schmaltz, you know, there's an entire like wing of Jewish cuisine based on chicken fat. I've never and you know, salmon even, right? Like you know, salmon's a fatty fish. You can taste it and you know, when you you have the smoke it, you see the oil. I have no idea how you get crab fat. Like I'm actually dying to know how you extract the fat. Or how you render crab to create fat? Because I would think, like, if you, you know, it's a lot of water in there. But this is fascinating to me, and I and also I would love to taste what a crab fat tortilla tastes like. Imagine just that beautiful corn, but with, also with like hints of, of crustacean. That sounds freaking fantastic. Okay, so I'm looking it up. It's tomali, T O M, as in Tom, myself. And then alley, tamale, not to be confused with like other tamale, crab fat or lobster paste is the soft green substance found in the body cavity of lobsters that fulfills the function of both the liver and the pancreas. And it is considered a delicacy, maybe eaten alone, but it is often added to sauces for flavor and as a thickening agent. It's that stuff. Yeah. That you kind of look slimy and you're like, you know, but yeah. In crabs, the tamale is yellow or yellow green in color in Maryland. It is the hepatopancreas of the blue crab. It's called the mustard, probably because of the yellow color, which is not the bright yellow of regular prepared yellow mustard, but closer to the one of the brown mustard, such as Dijon, particularly when eating steamed or boiled crabs. It is considered a delicacy. So that's what we're talking here. So a crab fat um, tortilla is just that those uh, that yellowy green guts there in a crab that he's basically turning into that that tortilla. And then there's the artichoke. I don't know much about the Jerusalem artichoke here. There seemed to be a very decisive, a divisive discussion in the in the judges' table whether that element was a positive or a negative to the dish. What say you on a Jerusalem artichoke? Do you have an opinion on this? Yeah. So, you know, they're sunchokes and, you know, it's funny when you, when you, when you see them at the farmer's market, they kind of look like a big stalk of ginger, 
or a thumb of ginger. Uh, they are starchy in a way that like you, you, and you've probably had many meals in recent years with a sunchoke puree. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a slightly lighter, slightly less, actually I'd say measurably less starchy thing than a potato. So you can kind of you do that with, but there is, there, there's, you know, sometimes they have a smokiness to them. Sometimes they have a bitterness to it. It was interesting to hear someone call them sweet. Cause I never think of that particular, um, characteristic, but it is distinct though, right? Like it's not a natural pairing with a crab. In fact, if, if you told me one of these three chefs was going to use sunchokes, I would assume it would be Dawn was part of her boil kind of as, as an alternate to a potato, kind of just doing a little bit of a – because it does have a very much potato-y profile, um, but it's just – not in terms of flavor, but just it kind of feels like a texture in terms of texture. It's like a potato. I would have guessed, oh, yeah, that's definitely going to be her. But it does – I mean it is – the criticism makes sense. I think it's a question of whether you're a Brooke person where you kind of like it or you're a Nina person who felt like – was it Nina or Naomi? Um, I think they both did. They, they both right. didn't care for it. Too bitter. Oh, Dale. I think Dale and Naomi just did not appreciate that. Of course, Gabe's going to go with a mole uh, coloradito, which is a one of the it's one of the chocolatier uh, moles. And I love that he used a, a, a cram and uh, crab stock. And now, I mean, the sunchokes is kind of in lieu of plantains, which is often used as sort of the thickening agent to that particular mole is plantains. And yeah, it is starchy like a plantain. So I think that was what he was kind of going for. I imagine there are no plantains to be gotten at the Astoria co-op where they did their shopping. Uh, but there were sunchokes, and that is kind of a nice, an interesting way to thicken the mole. Because again, you you have to the the mole has to have that a creaminess, but it has to have a certain weight to it, right? It can't just be kind of a thin sauce. I mean, part of it, the hardiness is the texture, and you need some starch to kind of do that. And he chose sunchokes. Great dish. I think the linen mishap didn't send him home. Let's get to Dawn here, Kevin. How many? She's a cat. She's a cat. She's got nine lives, Kevin. She's going to use every single one of those lives. She does the Dungeness crab boil and forgets to put the potatoes in. Kevin, is she going to do this every episode? I mean, it was such a good dish. They loved it. It was a little messy. Not a little messy, a lot messy. People were getting hit with shrapnel on on the table. All these expensive outfits were getting ruined by this red sauce, and I thought she was going home. Pack your knives. See you, Dawn. You're done. But no, the dish was so good and so flavorful. Yes, they could have used a little spongy biscuit, as, as Nina said, but not only did she it was it super messy, and they were okay with that, I guess, in the end. And not only did she forget the potato, but the dish was so fucking tasty, they couldn't send her home. Yeah, you never know where like Padma's going to come down on because often it, it, a critique of hers, particularly at Quick Fires, it was very difficult to eat. Yes. And yet this is the most difficult to eat. But I think there's a certain allowance because I think it's understood if you're going to a crab royal, you know, put on a bib or, or you're just going to – you know, there's going to be there's wads of newspaper. It's down and dirty, and you would never penalize a chef for capturing the spirit of of the thing they're they're paying homage to. It's a testimonial to how just delicious her food is that 
you know, she wasn't docked. Also, what was interesting is you, I was expecting someone at the table, be it Tom or, or Dale or someone to say, you know, traditionally in a crab boil, it's not just the fish. You have the accompaniments. And I don't see any of that here. Right. No one asked for a potato. I mean, I, though I do think when you talk about it would have been nice to sop it up. Yes, there's bread. But I think one of the things that you love about potatoes in a boil are is they get infused with so much of that sauce. And it's this kind of alternate bite. So, you know, you have a big bite of crab or, or crawfish or whatever it is. And then you have this starchy potato, which is such a contrast in textures and, and, and kind of weight that it does it. But no one seemed to miss that. And it, it, again, it's such a tribute to just what kind of flavor she's able to derive out of her cooking that this wasn't fatal at all. That basically she put crab in a bowl with a sauce. And that was it. There were no technical wizardry. You know, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't, a, you know, a mole or, or a stock or, you know, it was just it. And, and I think it speaks to that. In terms of time management, I don't know what else there is to say. She's got, <laughs> you know, she's got one more finale left. Again, I, as I've said, kind of going on is you don't really ever remember any chefs coming up against time for the finale. One of the privileges of making it to the finale is they just let you cook and they give you plenty of time to do it. In fact, all the artifices that define top chef competition, which is, you know, cook blindfolded, go into a dark room. You only have 17 minutes to cook a 40 minute, you know, none of that is on the table. And so my hope for Dawn is, that, you know, it, it ceases to be an issue because it ceases to be an issue. But Tom, there's one thing I do want to talk about. We've put it aside because it's kind of, we've kind of buried the lead here. Well, this next part is very, very hard. Don and Gabe, pack your bags. You're both going to the finale. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about the fact that nobody gets sent home? That was a long sigh. Yeah, I've gone both pro and negative on this. I'm trying to figure out where I fall because this hasn't really happened. We've had three chefs in the finale. Last two two seasons of Top Chef, we've had three chefs in the finale. So it's not – totally out of the question that we have three chefs on the last episode. Um, last year, we had the All-Stars with Steph, Melissa, and and Brian. The year before that, we had Kelsey, Sarah, and Eric Ajapong. Um, but to me, I was stunned that Dawn didn't get home for the simple reason that you reap what you sow. She's been doing this every week, forgetting to do a dish, and the the slightest of errors are going to get you sent home. And she's done an amazing job with the food that she has put on the table. But I kind of felt like it was a little cheap because this is like there was a flaw. She had a flaw in her dish that she didn't put something out on the plate. And the only thing that I can think of that saved her is that it happened to the other two chefs. And so if you're going to send home Dawn for forgetting the potato, why can't you send Gabe home for getting melted linen on one of his tortillas that he couldn't put on a plate or or Shoda for, for missing one of the pieces of sushi? So I think her saving grace was the fact that the other two chefs screwed up 
And so she didn't get to go home. I, that's where I, I stand on here is I think she screwed up again for the same reasons that she always screws up on, on forgetting to put a component. And they did this whole montage from week one to week 10 and 11. And she doesn't go home. And I kind of feel like I'm excited for them that Dawn is going to have a chance to stay in the competition with Gabe and Shota for the finale. It's not totally out of the ordinary. But I just kind of feel like they're giving her uh, these mulligans time and time again that we've never seen on the show. And I love Dawn. But what are we doing here? To me, it's not about Dawn. It's not. And I I have no preference whether a finale should have two or three chefs. Like, I I, I don't care. Uh, Whatever, whatever the the structure is, that season is the structure. And and it's not about even, you know, Dawn deserves to go home or not. I, I just feel like at the risk of being a downer, because I do, I love the dynamic of all three were happy and they get to go on as a group. But your job as the top chef jury is to choose. And I know sometimes it's hard. I know it must be excruciating to send a really good chef home when you get to the final three. You know, it is heartbreaking if you do not get to the finale, but you get all the way up there. Uh, and here you don't even have the benefit is, yeah, the you know, the last four weeks are at the coast or three weeks are at the coast. There's some, you know, uh, so it's not exactly you know, getting on a plane for Macau. But I just feel like you've abdicated your responsibility as judges. And if the answer is, it was the jury was deadlocked. We couldn't choose. Then you know what? Get back in the kitchen. You've got 45 minutes to make one bite. Overtime, baby. Uh, yep. You know, it, overtime. And by the way, I have no – I don't care if it was Shoda. I don't care if it was Gabe. I don't care if it was Don. But I just feel like – I mean, first of all, I, I think there is a certain unfairness to it. Shota won. Part of winning is winning. Part of winning mm. is, is that the next week you show up and there's one fewer competitor you have to extinguish. Oh, And I yeah. just feel like yeah. they abdicated their responsibility. It was a cop-out. Yes, I know it's hard. I know they've cooked their – you know, they, they cook their hearts. I know it, it, it feels really powerful and lovely to say, pack your bags, you're both going. But this isn't soccer, okay? Like there are no ties. <laughs> you you, you yeah. get in the room and if you got to stay in there for two hours, if you've got to every, you got to come up with a new scoring system. Everybody, here's a piece of paper, you know, grade from 100 to zero for each chef and we're going to average out. And if someone gets a 94.3, they're ahead of 94.3. Two, and that's how we're going to do it. But don't abdicate your responsibilities. Somebody needed to go home. Yeah. How do you think Jamie feels now where it's like, oh, so when it's really close, then both of you get to go to the finale. You know, like like Tom, he does it every time. It's like, unfor- this is top chef. Unfortunately, someone, one of you has to go home and someone goes home. And on this one, again, I know you're going to say, I don't think Don should have gone home or I'm not, I'm not here to – I'm not here to say whether one of the chefs deserved to go home or not. I'm here to say yes. I'm here to say Dawn deserved to go home. She uh, she forgot one of the elements on her dish again, and they've given her a free pass time and time again. And I just feel like if we're going to keep the integrity of the show, Kevin, the integrity of the show, Dawn has to go home. No, no. Here's what I disagree with you. I'm not saying Dawn shouldn't have been the one to go home. I don't think there's such a thing as a free pass. It wasn't a free pass. Sometimes chefs go home because they forget to put an ingredient. I think it's – again, it's a tribute to Don's cooking that even with these omissions, she never has the worst dish, right? And, and I think that is sort of the question is, is that her cooking has overcome it. Now, in this case, it might have been her, although I do agree that 
nobody seemed to miss the potato itself. Uh, the, the the sweet potato that she didn't get on the on the plate. Uh, I don't know if it's Gabe. I don't know if it's her. Like I didn't taste the food. Right. We're we're down to the point where again, both those dish look great. I don't know what I'm saying. And, and look, I have a vest. I think it probably is Dawn. I have a vested interest because Dawn is on my team to not see her going out. But somebody has to go down. I don't care who it is. You've abdicated your responsibility as a ju- as a jury by saying, oh. Participation trophies for all. Wow, I love it. Make the call. There are no ties. Get back in the kitchen, and we're going to do one bite. Someone makes a crab freaking dessert. I don't know. Go make an amuse. Go make a crab cocktail. Uh, It doesn't matter. Hey, who can get the most ounces of crab meat cracked in 10 minutes, you know, and give them both a, a mallet and whatever the hell? Like, get something. But you can't, on the penultimate week of the show, I cannot abide by. We love you both. Kevin, let me throw this one at you. Is this Top Chef tipping their hand a little bit that Shota's going to win this whole thing? Because there's no way we're going to have a tie. We're not going to eliminate one of these chefs. And then one of those chefs that didn't get eliminated are going to go on to win the whole thing? No way. There is no way. If that happens, Shota... I'm ne- if I'm showing, I'm never coming back to Top Chef alumni. If I win the penultimate episode, one of the two chefs do not get eliminated, and then one of those two chefs go on to win the whole thing, damn thing over me, I am livid. I'm with you. So let's give him what would he, he should have? Should he have a buy in the first half of the finale? Yeah, I'm with you. That's got to be infuriating. Is that you? Not only did you win the episode, but what if one of those chefs? goes on to win the whole thing and they couldn't they shouldn't have been there in the first place. So spinning this to next episode, yeah, I I think I think you're right is that maybe Shoda maybe the first thing in the episode is like Shoda by virtue of winning, we need to eliminate either Gabe. This is going to be essentially the overtime. Yeah, they need some and I don't think they're going to do it. But um and by the way, typically I like three chefs in the finale. I think there's more to kind of uh, there's more to more to see. Uh, but again, I I think they violated the structural integrity of the show. And I love this season. I love all three of these chefs. That is not the competition. Like no one said to the San Francisco Giants in 1993, Tom, you won 103 games in the NL West. We're just going to bring you to the playoffs. No. Atlanta had 104, and it, you know the most successful season in Major League history. They didn't get to go to the postseason. No one gave, you know, Will Clark and Barry Bonds a you know a pass. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Like it, it just it's hard. I know it's hard to get in that room and to you know and, and to eliminate a really just accomplished and and talented chef. But them the breaks. Here is the score by our point system of the last nine weeks for Shota. 5, 10, 5, 5, 5, 6, 5, 10, 10. He's got 84 points this season compared to Gabe at 67, compared to Dawn at 57. Look, Shota's never going to say it. I'd be shocked if he says it in the next episode in the finale. Like, what the hell? Like, come on, I have to go against both of these people when I've earned 
Like I've been just mm-hmm. been rolling the last eight episodes. I've never been in the bottom eight straight, never in the bottom. I got three wins in the last eight episodes, four overall. And I got to go against these two. Like that was cheap. That was, that was not fair. It was cheap. He's never, he's never going to say that, but man, this, this guy coming into this finale, he's got to be considered the, the, the favorite here. Tom, any closing thoughts? I, <sighs> I'm glad we touched on the whole no elimination thing. I'm excited to see Don, Gabe, and Shota go to the finale, but I just kind of feel like this is Shota's to win. As we said on the first episode, when you picked him up on the first pick, I was like, yep, that's that would have been my first pick too. And I'm still sticking to that going into this finale, that Shota, I feel like, is going to run the table and win this whole damn thing. It would be... I'm not going to say a travesty, but it would be a disappointment if Gabe or Don ends up winning this whole thing based on a technicality or an abdication of their duty and not eliminating a chef, Kevin. So I'm glad we covered that as well as we did. Finale next week. I'm excited for Tom Habistro. This is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Pack Your Knives.